Chapter Five of the Man Whom the Trees Loved. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Man Whom the Trees Loved by Algernon Blackwood. Chapter Five. With the departure of Sanderson, the significance of the curious incidents waned, because the moods that had produced them passed away. Mrs. Bittacy soon afterwards came to regard them as some growth of disproportion that had been very largely, perhaps, in her own mind. It did not strike her that this change was sudden, for it came about quite naturally. For one thing, her husband never spoke of the matter, and for another, she remembered how many things in life that had seemed inexplicable and singular at the time turned out later to have been quite commonplace. Most of it, certainly, she put down to the presence of the artist and to his wild, suggestive talk. With his welcome removal, the world turned ordinary again and safe. The fever, though it lasted as usual a short time only, had not allowed of her husband's getting up to say good-bye, and she had conveyed his regrets in adieu. In the morning, Mr. Sanderson had seemed ordinary enough. In his town hat and gloves, as she saw him go, he seemed tame and unalarming. After all, she thought as she watched the pony cart bear him off, he's only an artist. What she had thought he might be otherwise, her slim imagination did not venture to disclose. Her change of feeling was wholesome and refreshing. She felt a little ashamed of her behavior. She gave him a smile, genuine because the relief she felt was genuine, as she bent over her hand and kissed it, but she did not suggest a second visit. And her husband, she noted with satisfaction and relief, had said nothing either. The little household fell again into the normal and sleepy routine to which it was accustomed, the name of Arthur Sanderson was rarely if ever mentioned. Nor, for her part, did she mention to her husband the incident of his walking in his sleep and the wild words he used. But to forget it was equally impossible. Thus it lay buried deep within her like a center of some unknown disease, of which it was a mysterious symptom, waiting to spread the first favorable opportunity. She prayed against it every night and morning, prayed that she might forget it, that God would keep her husband safe from harm for in spite of much surface foolishness, that many might have read as weakness, Mrs. Bittacy had balanced sanity and a fine deep faith. She was greater than she knew. Her love for her husband and her God were somehow one, an achievement only possible to a single-hearted nobility of soul. There followed a summer of great violence and beauty, of beauty because the refreshing rains at night prolonged the glory of the spring and spread it all across July, keeping the foliage young and sweet of violence because the winds that tore about the south of England brushed the whole country into dancing movement. They swept the woods magnificently and kept them roaring with a perpetual grand voice. Their deepest notes seemed never to leave the sky. They sang and shouted and torn leaves raced and flooded through the air long before their usually appointed time. Many a tree, after days of roaring and dancing, fell exhausted to the ground. The cedar on the lawn gave up two limbs that fell upon successive days at the same hour, too, just before dusk. The wind often makes its most boisterous effort at that time, before it drops with the sun, and these two huge branches lay in dark ruin covering half the lawn. They spread across it and towards the house. They left an ugly gaping space upon the tree, so that the Lebanon looked unfinished, half-destroyed, a monster shorn of its old-time comeliness and splendor. Far more of the forest was now visible than before, it peered through the breach of the broken defences. They could see from the windows of the house now, especially from the drawing-room and bedroom windows, straight out into the glades and depths beyond. Mrs. Bittacy's niece and nephew, 
who were staying on a visit at the time, enjoyed themselves immensely, helping the gardeners carry off the fragments. It took two days to do this, for Mr. Bittacy insisted on the branches being moved entire. He would not allow them to be chopped. Also he would not consent to their use as firewood. Under his superintendence the unwieldy masses were dragged to the edge of the garden and arranged upon the frontier line between the forest and the lawn. The children were delighted with the scheme. They entered into it with enthusiasm. At all costs this defense against the inroads of the forest must be made secure. They caught their uncle's earnestness, felt even something of a hidden motive that he had, and the visit, usually rather dreaded, became the visit of their lives instead. It was Aunt Sophia this time who seemed discouraging and dull. "'She's got so old and funny,' opined Stephen. But Alice, who felt in the silent displeasure of her aunt some secret thing that alarmed her, said, "'I think she's afraid of the woods. She never comes into them with us, you see. All the more reason, then, for making this wall impreg, all fat and thick and solid,' he concluded, unable to manage the longer word. "'Then nothing, simply nothing, can get through, can't it, Uncle David?' And Mr. Bittacy, jacket discarded and working in his speckled waistcoat, went puffing to their aid, arranging the massive limb of the cedar like a hedge. "'Come on,' he said. "'Whatever happens, you know we must finish before it's dark. Already the wind is roaring in the forest further out.' And Alice caught the phrase and instantly echoed it. "'Stevie!' she cried below her breath. "'Look sharp, you lazy lump. Didn't you hear what Uncle David said? It'll come in and catch us before we're done.' They worked like Trojans, and sitting beneath the wisteria tree that climbed the southern wall of the cottage, Mrs. Bittacy, with her knitting, watched them, calling from time to time an insignificant message of counsel and advice. The messages passed, of course, unheeded. Mostly, indeed, they were unheard, for the workers were too absorbed. She warned her husband not to get too hot, Alice not to tear her dress, Stephen not to strain his back with pulling. Her mind hovered between the homeopathic medicine, chest upstairs, and her anxiety to see the business finished. For this breaking up of the cedar had stirred again her slumbering alarms. It revived memories of the visit of Mr. Sanderson that had been sinking into oblivion. She recalled his queer and odious way of talking, and many things she hoped forgotten drew their heads up from that subconscious region to which all forgetting is impossible. They looked at her and nodded. They were full of life. They had no intention of being pushed aside and buried permanently. "'Now look,' they whispered. Didn't we tell you so? They had been merely waiting the right moment to assert their presence. In all her former vague distress crept over her. Anxiety, uneasiness returned. That dreadful sinking of the heart came too. This incident of the cedar's breaking up was actually so unimportant, and yet her husband's attitude towards it made it so significant. There was nothing that he said in particular, or did, or left undone that frightened her. But his general air of earnestness seemed so unwarranted, she felt that he deemed the thing important. He was so exercised about it. This evidence of sudden concern and interest buried all the summer from her sight and knowledge. She realized now it had been buried purposely. He had kept it intentionally concealed. Deeply submerged in him, there ran this tide of other thoughts, desires, hopes. What were they? Whither did they lead? The accident to the tree betrayed it most unpleasantly, and doubtless more than he was aware. She watched his grave and serious face as he worked there with the children, and as she watched she felt afraid. It vexed her that the children worked so eagerly. They unconsciously supported him. The thing she feared she would not even name, but it was waiting. Moreover, 
as far as her puzzled mind could deal with, a dread so vague and incoherent, the collapse of the cedar somehow brought it nearer. The fact that, all so ill-explained and formless, the thing yet lay in her consciousness, out of reach but moving and alive, filled her with a kind of puzzled, dreadful wonder. Its presence was so very real, its power so gripping, its partial concealment so abominable. Then, out of the dim confusion, she grasped one thought and saw it stand quite clear before her eyes. She found difficulty in clothing it in words, but its meaning perhaps was this. That cedar stood in their life for something friendly. Its downfall meant disaster. A sense of some protective influence about the cottage, and about her husband in particular, was thereby weakened. "'Why do you fear the big wind so?' he had asked her several days before, after a particularly boisterous day, and the answer she gave surprised her while she gave it. One of those heads poked up unconsciously, and let slip the truth. "'Because, David, I feel they bring the forest with them,' she faltered. "'They blow something from the trees into the mind, into the house.' He looked at her keenly for a moment. "'That must be why I love them, then,' he answered. "'They blow the souls of the trees about the sky like clouds.' The conversation dropped. She had never heard him talk in quite that way before. And another time, when he had coaxed her to go with him down one of the nearer glades, she asked why he took the small hand-axe with him, and what he wanted it for. "'To cut the ivy that clings to their trunks and takes their life away,' he said. "'But can't the vergerers do that?' she asked. "'That's what they're paid for, isn't it?' Whereupon he explained that ivy was a parasite, the trees knew not how to fight alone, and that the vergerers were careless and did not do it thoroughly. They gave a chop here and there, leaving the tree to do the rest for itself, if it could. "'Besides, I like to do it for them. I love to help them and protect,' he added, the foliage rustling all about his quiet words as they went. And these stray remarks, as his attitude towards the broken cedar, betrayed this curious, subtle change that was going forward to his personality. Slowly and surely all the summer it had increased. It was growing. The thought startled her horribly, just as a tree grows. The outer evidence from day to day so slight as to be unnoticeable, yet the rising tide so deep and irresistible. The alteration spread all through and over him, was in both mind and actions, sometimes almost in his face as well. Occasionally thus it stood up straight outside himself and frightened her. His life was somehow becoming linked so immediately with the trees, and with all that the trees signified. His interests became more and more their interests, his activity combined with theirs, his thoughts and feelings theirs, his purpose, hope, desire, his fate. The darkness of some vague, enormous terror dropped its shadow on her when she thought of it. Some instinct in her heart she dreaded infinitely more than death, for death meant sweet translation for his soul, came gradually to associate the thought of him with the thought of trees, in particular with these forest trees. Sometimes before she could face the thing, argue it away, or pray it into silence, she found the thought of him running swiftly through her mind like a thought of the forest itself, the two most intimately linked and joined together, each a part and complement of the other, one being. The idea was too dim for her to see it face to face, its mere possibility dissolved the instant she focused it to get the truth behind it. It was too utterly elusive, made protean. Under the attack of even a minute's concentration, the very meaning of it vanished, melted away. The idea lay really behind any words that she could ever find, beyond the touch of definite thought. Her mind was unable to grapple with it. But while it vanished, the trail of its approach and disappearance flickered a moment before her shaking vision. The horror certainly remained. 
reduced to the simple human statement that her temperate sought instinctively. It stood perhaps at this. Her husband loved her, and he loved the trees as well. But the trees came first, claimed parts of him she did not know. She loved her God and him. He loved the trees and her. Thus in guise of some faint distressing compromise, the matter shaped itself for her perplexed mind in the terms of conflict. A silent hidden battle raged, but as yet raged far away. The breaking of the cedar was a visible outward fragment of a distant and mysterious encounter that was coming daily closer to them both. The wind, instead of roaring in the forest further out, now came nearer, booming in fitful gusts about its edge and frontiers. Meanwhile the summer dimmed. The autumn winds went sighing through the woods. Leaves turned to golden red, and the evenings were drawing in with cosy shadows before the first sign of anything seriously untoward made its appearance. It came then with a flat, decided kind of violence that indicated mature preparation beforehand. It was not impulsive nor ill-considered. In a fashion it seemed expected, and indeed inevitable. For within a fortnight of their annual change to the little village of Sealands above St. Raphael, a change so regular for the past ten years that it was not even discussed between them, David Bittacy abruptly refused to go. Thompson had laid the tea-table, prepared the spirit-lamp beneath the urn, pulled down the blinds in that swift and silent way she had, and left the room. The lamps were still unlit. The firelight shone on the chintz armchairs, and Boxer lay asleep on the black horsehair rug. Upon the walls the gilt picture frames gleamed faintly, the pictures themselves indistinguishable. Mrs. Bittacy had warmed the teapot and was in the act of pouring the water in to heat the cups when her husband, looking up from his chair across the hearth, made the abrupt announcement. "'My dear,' he said, as though following a train of thought of which she only heard this final phrase, it's really quite impossible for me to go. And so abrupt, inconsequent, it sounded that she at first misunderstood. She thought he meant to go out into the garden or the woods, but her heart leaped all the same. The tone of his voice was ominous. Of course not, she answered. It would be most unwise. Why should you? She referred to the mist that always spread on autumn nights upon the lawn. But before she finished the sentence she knew that he referred to something else, and her heart then gave its second horrible leap. "'David, you mean abroad?' she gasped. "'I mean abroad, dear, yes.' It reminded her of the tone he used when saying good-bye years ago, before one of those jungle expeditions she dreaded. His voice then was so serious, so final. It was serious and final now. For several moments she could think of nothing to say. She busied herself with the teapot. She had filled one cup with hot water till it overflowed, and she emptied it slowly into the slop-basin, trying with all her might not to let him see the trembling of her hand. The firelight and the dimness of the room both helped her, but in any case he would hardly have noticed it. His thoughts were far away. End of chapter 5